I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Live Mike. In just a moment, we'll be joined by Molly Davis. She is a criminal justice policy analyst at the Libertas Institute. She and the Institute have come up with 10 suggestions for police reform that they'd like to see enacted with an explanation for all of that. But first, I want to turn to Twitter for a moment and just... Is it now five minutes ago, Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall tweeted the following. I want to read it to you verbatim. It's one of those tweets that has one, two, three, four. There's a little bit of follow-up, but but, uh, uh, stick with me. And it has to do with the curfew which has been put in place in Salt Lake City. From the Twitter handle of Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall, she writes, Today, I will be ending the curfew in Salt Lake City. After seeing the respect that protesters have largely shown for one another, police and our city, I believe that Salt Lake City is once again proving itself to be a place of peace and progress. That is the initial tweet. The headline there is that Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall is ending the curfew here in Salt Lake City. There had been one in place that was to last the entire week from 6 a.m. until 8 p.m. That now, according to this tweet from the mayor, is over. She followed up that announcement with, I want you to know that I see all of you out there doing your best not only to keep things peaceful, but also coming together across lines to communicate and connect. I don't want the simmer of frustration to disappear, but I want to work together to direct to direct it toward positivity and progress throughout cities and our nation. Overt racism and implicit bias affects the ability of people of color to fairly access health care, education, our economy, and judicial system, food, child care, and more opportunities than we can name. I'm committed to the work, and I know you are too. That comes in a series of four tweets from Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall. The headline again, the mayor has ended the curfew in Salt Lake City, the one that was in place from 6 a.m., or rather from 8 p.m. until 6 a.m., making it a crime to be on the streets uh, after the hour of 8 p.m. That's over. And it is over because, as she says, our city has demonstrated uh, uh, its ability to be a place of peace and progress. So uh, we'll follow that throughout the day. We'll likely get updates from the mayor, get more of her rationale for for that change. I, in a moment, I'm going to talk about uh, the mayor and some of her interactions with the Fraternal Order of Police. Uh, fascinating uh, back and forth, and I applaud them both for their dynamic responses to the ever-changing situations here in Salt Lake City. Uh, but that's coming up right now. I want to talk a little bit about police reform. Uh, Ms. Davis, how are you? Doing great. How are you? Uh, I'm grateful that you're joining us. Again, Molly Davis, uh, criminal justice policy analyst with the Libertas Institute. Uh, Tell me, what does a policy analyst at the Libertas Institute do? I focus specifically on all sorts of criminal justice reforms, mostly on a statewide basis here in Utah. I'm doing research. I'm meeting with police departments and with lobbyists from all over who represent different entities in the criminal justice system. And we try to try to push good reform and policy up at the state legislature during the legislative session. And I imagine that uh, a number of these uh, proposed reforms that you have uh, at the Institute's website right now have been in the works for some time, uh, but maybe more apropos uh, as we face the, the current situation around us. 
Yeah, absolutely. Police reform, any criminal justice reform um, that has to do with accountability, transparency, you know, protecting individuals' rights and privacy. Those are things that we have broadly focused on for many years. And right now, the public, there's an appetite for change. And so we're trying to come out and say, hey, look at these issues we've been working on. Um, you know, you can you can do a lot to help push these forward. And we're we're here to be an advocate and to to create real change. Walk us through a few of the reforms that you'd like to see enacted. Yeah, well, one of the things we want to see that we've been working on for quite some time is body camera legislation. We want to see every police uh, officer equipped with a body camera and have requirements mandating that it be on, especially in high-risk situations like um, when they are uh, conducting a search warrant of a person's home or a car. Um, We think that like these past few weeks and months have proven the importance of video footage. I mean, especially in, in the cases of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery without the video camera. I mean, who knows where these cases would have gone. And because of this, you know, you, all Utah policemen should be required to wear body cameras. Um, and there's an argument coming that they are too costly to maintain, but we think that the benefits outweigh the costs. And, you know, our proposal is funding support could come from the state's forfeiture grant program to help mm. agencies help defray the costs. And so we're clear, your proposals are, are all uh, targeted at state-level law. Is that correct? Or, or do you expand to the federal level at all? Yeah, mostly state-level. We do have one federal proposal that we talk about that's kind of out of our hands, but we're still encouraging um, Congress and the Supreme Court to take action on that. And what that is is the doctrine of qualified immunity. Mm. So qualified immunity, is it's a legal doctrine created by the Supreme Court in 1967, and it shields government officials from being sued in civil courts for wrongdoing on the job. So under this doctrine, lawsuits against police officers are only permitted if the officer in question violated a clearly established law or right that the courts already have a precedent case on. And it's a pretty high standard to meet because to to successfully bring a lawsuit against an officer or any government employee, there must be a nearly identical case um, that's that's been established in the court system. So since facts and circumstances vary so much, you know, identical previous cases are, are pretty rare to find. But we know on Monday, um, Representative Justin Amash announced that he is trying to sponsor legislation to abolish qualified immunity. And the Supreme Court is also set to announce um, which cases they're going to move forward on, if any, that I that would reconsider um, the, the the qualified immunity doctrine. So there is some some things happening on the federal level, but unfortunately on the state side, there's not much to be done. Put, put that in terms that we can understand. So if uh, if that circumstance or that doctrine were to be upended, that may require uh, officers to purchase something akin to liability insurance or malpractice insurance, like a doctor. Explain that to me. Yeah, yeah. So if qualified immunity um, under the status quo, you know, an individual can't sue individual actors um, in government. So George Floyd's family, for example, would have nearly impossible time um, holding the officers accountable as individuals in the civil courts. Um, And so we're arguing that because what happens in these cases when they can't hold individuals accountable is that they they often go to the, the the whole entity, the police department as a whole, and sue them, which results in the cost landing on the taxpayer on taxpayers' heads and um, 
it doesn't really uphold any individual accountability for the officers who actually partook in the misconduct incident. And so another argument we make is that individual officers should be required to purchase some sort of liability insurance for when incidents arise so they can actually be held personally responsible um, for when civil suits do arise. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of different uh, people out there who have to purchase insurance for their jobs. Doctors have to get medical malpractice insurance, you know, engineers, attorneys, plumbers, all sorts of people. But for some reason, we have this really high-risk job of police officers, and we don't require insurance under the status quo. So that's something we uh, really think would help with personal accountability in the policing system. Molly Davis has been my guest, a criminal justice policy analyst at the Libertas Institute. Uh, We spoke of two of ten proposals that you have for police reform. I'll post uh, your article on my Facebook page and invite individuals here listening to go check it out. And I'll thank you, uh, Molly, for your time and your breakdown of these issues. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. All righty. We're going to take a break here in a moment. When we come back, we're going to touch uh, again on this issue of dynamic leadership. I have, over the past three days, observed leaders in all corners of this state exercising uh, a very specific type of leadership, and it's dynamic. And by that, I mean as the situation changes and their understanding changes, so too have their attitudes and positions. It's wonderfully encouraging. I've got a great example of it next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio.